you're 21 when you go into prison. How old were you this year, if you don't mind me asking? I, I was 69. So this ordeal has been all of your adult life? All of my adult life. All of my adult life. That's Winston True. In the last episode, you heard about the event that led him and the Oval Four to prison for a non-existent crime. If you haven't heard that one, go back and start there, because in this episode, you'll hear about his near 50-year search for justice that finally came, as in late 2019, he stepped out of London's Royal Courts of Justice and onto the Strand a free man. After all these years, after all these years, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. I was so happy I would I could have burst out of my skin. What he found along that journey, though, was shocking. Simply put, the Oval Four were not the only victims of a corrupt officer and an unjust system. On that point, you're listening to Unjust, a Justice Gap podcast, and I'm Callum McRae. Uh, it's hard to describe what I'm thinking about now. You think, how can this be true? I, I said, I'm in another reality. I'm going to wake up from this soon. When we left Winston at the end of the previous episode, he'd just been sentenced to two years in prison. He was confused, scared and alone. All he did know is that he was innocent and he was going to prove it no matter how long it would take. Where, where, did, you, where did you think you found that motivation, that fight from? My father and my mother made great sacrifices to bring me to this country. In 1952, they had a 51 storm in Jamaica. The storm hit St. Thomas, destroyed everything in St. Thomas. People, cattle, livelihood. He decided he's not going to stay in Jamaica. He's going to go to England and try and find a better life for us, his children. They sold their land, sold the house. My father died when I was nine. Mother was left a widow. We got put in a council care. I could not betray the sacrifices they made to bring me to this country. How could I betray the suffering, the hardship to bring up the six of us by herself? Going to school, the racism in school, I had to do something to honor for my father and mother, the sacrifices they made to bring me to this country. So when they arrested me wrongfully and told me I was doing this, and I knew I wasn't doing it. That was the motivation behind me. His sentence was reduced on appeal, but Winston served many months in prison. The fight to clear his name really gathered pace when he was freed. I just couldn't accept it. To me, it didn't make any sense. I couldn't accept it. In the last episode, I asked you to remember a name. Detective Sergeant Derek Ridgewell. If you Google his name, you'll see a friendly-looking, baby-faced man in black and white. Winston certainly remembers the arresting officer of the Oval Four differently. He stole 47 years of my life and I'll never get those years back. I can, I can see him now. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Callum. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm, yeah, I'm sick of this Zoom stuff. <laughs> I, I'm Jenny Wiltshire. I'm a criminal defence solicitor at Hickman and Rose. Jenny Wiltshire represented Winston alongside Judy Kahn QC and Stephen Bird of Bird Solicitors in the Court of Appeal last year. So 
what was discovered about Detective Sergeant Ridgewell? Well, obviously, the, yeah, the most fundamental one was being involved in a conspiracy to, to steal goods in transit over a period of at least 18 months in which he ended up receiving a prison sentence of seven years. It wasn't until the year 2000 that Winston was empowered to discover just how corrupt this officer and the system that covered for him really was. I knew that Ridgewell had died in prison. Then the Freedom of Information Act came in, and our friend said to me, you know, you could use the Freedom of Information Act to find out the policeman that had fitted you up. And with funding so limited that essentially if, you, if you're employed, you're not eligible for legal aid. And with a case that's so complicated and so old, that yet he didn't, he, he didn't really have the option. I approached solicitors and said, look, um, you're not eligible for legal aid. It'll cost you X, X, X to do a search. I could find it out myself. I can read and write. So, use the Freedom of Information Act. I found out an immense amount about Detective Sergeant Ridgewell. You can see there were other cases where there were concerns about the actions of DS Ridgewell and his team. And in fact, that there were calls in the early 70s for an inquiry into Ridgewell's team, the anti mugging team on the underground. He'd left this country to go to Rhodesia with, I think, look at policing under the part of the empire that do it in the way he went to Rhodesia, the last bastion of white rule in Africa, which, which, which did, might give you some idea of his mindset. He's transferred back to this country, went back to Bromley as a hero, rejoined the British Transport Police in 1965. By 1972, he was promoted to detective sergeant. Then he started spitting up black people on the underground. Certainly, Winston and his friends weren't the only people who had been saying for many years that they'd been forced into making false confessions at the, at the hands of Dears Ridgewell. They fitted up with, with me 16 black young people. The first case he fitted up was the Waterloo Four. Four young black young men and one white woman, one of them his girlfriend, sit on the train, leaving over going to Waterloo. Suddenly, they said some men got up off the train, pushed them off the train, dragged them upstairs, and said, oh, by the way, we saw you on the platform. Pick all one's purse. Plain clothes police, they didn't know that. So, certainly in relation to the anti-mugging squad, they, they seem to target young black men, quite often follow them off the tube, accuse them of whether it's stealing handbags or pickpocketing, with the only evidence essentially being that the officers themselves said that they'd witnessed it. And then coupled with that, you would then have a confession that had been made at the police station. That was the 2nd of February. 18th of February, they arrest six young men called the Stockholm Six. Woodrow's story is that six young men came to a carriage. One of them put an half in him, tried to rob him. The young man said, that's a pack of lies. We we're, were never on the train with Woodrow. We weren't trying to rob him on the train. They beat the crap out of them, planted a knife on Harriet. Harriet was found guilty, given three years in prison. The other five were given detention centers and also training. One was found not guilty. Why was he found not guilty? Because he was illiterate. He couldn't have understood what he signed, so they found him not guilty. And there were calls from at least one MP, a magistrates, a Crown Court judge, and the Civil Liberties Group for an inquiry to be, to be held in relation to him. But instead of that, British Transport Police just quietly moved DS Ridgewell to the, the Goods in Transit team, where it appears he continued to still carry out his wrongdoing. Then our case, then the last case, two Jesuit priests from Rhodesia are trying to find their way to Huntington. 
some two men rush at him, grab him, wrestles him to the ground. He thinks they're being mugged because he's hearing about all this mugging taking place in London. He thinks the white men are going to mug him. He's only at the top of the escalator. They say, oh, we're police. Goes to the old Bailey. The judge stopped the trial. He said, hang on a second. You said these two men of excellent character. You said we're trying to pick people's pockets. Six of you give different accounts. How come the woman you said these men tried to rob have not been produced? Where's this? Where's this? Where's this? He threw the case out. I think it's absolutely shocking, and it's not just a case of a corrupt police officer who's been sent to prison. This is this is where the system itself. There were people calling for an inquiry in 1972, 1973. Again, they did nothing. In all of the four cases, complaints were made against Woodrow and his team. Did nothing. Winston True catalogued D.S. Ridgewell's wrongdoing in his book called Black for a Cause. Then he subsequently made a documentary with the same title about it too. I'd not heard about Stephen Simmons as the three white men who fit up in Clapham. That might help. Do, do they have a microphone on them? Uh, it's got a microphone. Right, is that any better? That's much better, much better. Uh, my name is Stephen Simmons. I was born in Tooting and grew up in Tooting in South London. Stephen Simmons was another who fell victim to the corrupt DS Ridgewell. I was going out with a young lady and then two of my friends walked up and said to me, are you going for a game of snooker later? So I said, yeah. I said, I'm just, the, the worst part is I can't remember the girl's name. Because <laughs> well, we are talking 50 years ago. Uh, I said, yeah, I've just got to drop her off and then I'll meet you down at the snooker club in Tooting, which was Zans, which is commonly known because Jimmy White, that's, that's where he played. And Anyway, so she said, just drop me off at the car park, I'll walk down. It's June 1975 and he's driving to the snooker hall with friends and a girl he's seeing at the time. The car stereo's blaring as he walks her to her front door. So I pulled into the car park and I literally just walked, it was just a few hundred yards down on the left-hand side, dropped her off. Well, as I was walking back to the car, I could hear the car before I could see it because we had the old eight tracks in those days. And it was up my head. They were shouting and screaming. Didn't think nothing of it. But when an unmarked police car pulled up, that's what they thought the problem was. It was residential southwest London and maybe they were simply making too much noise. I wasn't bothered at all. Well, I wasn't bothered at all. I mean, the car was all legal, it was taxi, short MOT. I hadn't been drinking. Yeah, it was just show me license and it was all in the car. It was all hidden underneath my seat. Everything that was in there. And it was Ridgewell and two other police officers. Detective Sergeant Lewis and Detective Sergeant Mayer. Then Ridgewell walked off to the car, which I, I'm guessing now, but I would think, because they didn't have handheld radios in those days, this was in 1975. He'd gone to the car and he'd radioed for backup or whatever. So he'd come back. So he just walked off to the car and come back. I, at this point, have none otherwise. I don't know what he's done. And he, he's standing there talking, he's quite a nice fella, just normal chat. Oh, you've been down the pub, been drinking, been left, no, no. And I'm, you know, I'm expecting the car to come out, bring the breathalyzer, etc. Been there a million times. And then you could hear a car come racing up the road, or a vehicle come racing up the road. And about uh, a split second later, you heard like doors opening and people getting out. And it was like, he was looking, I was looking. I wasn't under, I was in no handcuffs, so I had nothing, but he was standing right to the side of me. And then all of a sudden, a uniformed policeman come around the corner. And then with that, he grabbed my head, shoved it to the roof, and said, you're under arrest for the theft of Royal Mailbags. Did it all just happen so quick that you're kind of... Seconds. It happened in seconds. 
He then marched all three of us into the back of the van and then we drove off. At this point, they really have no idea what's going on. The van had no windows, so they didn't even know where they were. In that way, it's kind of like a metaphor for the disorienting nature of what's going on, isn't it? You don't have a clue where you are, you don't have a clue what's going on. Exactly. I could have turned up in Wimbledon as opposed to uh, um, Waterloo. I had, you know, we left to right, left to right. And then into a room in a police station. To this day, he still doesn't know for certain which one. And that was it. Nothing happened. Never see anybody, never see Ridgewell, never see nothing. And about half past four or five in the morning, oh, we were asleep. I was on the table asleep because I'm going to work next morning. Of course, he wasn't going to work in the morning. Instead, he'd realise his whereabouts at about 11am as he walked out into the dock of Southwestern Magistrates Court. What's going through your head when you kind of come out into the... Because that, that just seems so bizarre to me. That must be terrifying. No, because... <laughs> <laughs> the stupid part, 19 years of age, I know I'm going to go up and this is all going to be, this is all going to get sorted. You know, if, you, if you've done something wrong, I think, in your life, which, I, I mean, I ain't been a saint and I have done things wrong, and you know that, you know the consequences are going to happen. But when you've never done, when you haven't done anything wrong, you just think, oh, it's all going to get blown over and, oh, yeah, ain't them, yeah, going on your bike, uh, and away you go. That is what we expected. Being 19, we never really, it didn't dawn on us until when they come back and they went guilty. That was when the reality, you know, because we're still, I think you're ho either hoping or thinking that, you know, they've got, you know, we haven't done anything. We've got, they've got, not, we haven't got no evidence. This was all later on in life that we realised. Where was the evidence? And you just know you're going to get off. When you haven't done something, you know that it's going to come good somewhere along the line. And obviously at this point it didn't. And it wasn't until uh, they went, how do you find these? And it was guilty. All three of us looked at each other and went, whoa, fuck. Now we're in shit. Stephen Simmons, alongside his two friends, were then sentenced to two years in prison. He'd spend his entire stay at Holsley Bay Borstal in Suffolk. He lost his flat, his car, his job and his liberty. How can this go so wrong? How? How can they do this? After serving eight months in Borstal, Stephen successfully built himself up as a businessman built a loving family and, to some extent, moved past his conviction. But it still plagues him to this day. It has played a terrible toll on me now, I have to say. So, when listening to the radio one day to LBC's Legal Hour with Daniel Barnett, he thought he'd call in and explain his situation. The advice he received was simple. Why not Google the police officer? And I remember sitting there thinking... Stupid thing to say. Now, what cop was going to put on a year on bent or on frame? Because you know, that's what I expected to see. You know, or it, 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 I don't know what I expected, really, but that was the kind of thing I expected. I turned on the computer, go on to Google, Detective Sergeant Ridgewell. Well, my wife heard me scream. How my computer never went out the window, I have got no, no idea at all. And I ain't that kind of a person. I was fuming to find out he went to prison a year after me, or 18 months. He goes to prison for the theft of £365,000 worth. So to find out he's actually a thief, and he's actually been charged with the same offence as what I had, 
Wow. You, you would never probably really appreciate how I felt at that time. With this new information, he presented his case to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, or the CCRC for short. Here's Jenny Wilshire again, who also represented Stephen. The, the CCRC is a, is a body that was set up to, to look into miscarriages of justice. It's, it's a body that works very hard. It's really underfunded, but it, it is a route in which if the CCRC consider their own grounds and that a case can be referred back to the Court of Appeal, they have powers to investigate and obtain documentation in a way lawyers, independent lawyers, can't. And it was with those investigative powers that the CCRC uncovered much more material. Stephen's conviction was overturned in the Court of Appeal in January 2018. I mean, when you were there, it was, it was such an emotional day that... Even my barrister started crying. As the Lord Chief Justice quashed Stephen's conviction, Winston True watched on from the public gallery. During the hearing, my book was used, was quoted as party evidence, using his appeal. I was so, I was over the moon. So I then applied to CCRC based on his victory my case review. Essentially, D.S. Ridgewell's integrity was so undermined by his proven wrongdoings and his guilty plea to being involved in that big conspiracy. That essentially was the, the, you know, the, the, the way of being able to demonstrate that the conviction was unsafe and that this was a miscarriage of justice. So tell me about that day. Oh, goodness me. Um, in the morning, my wife and I were I'm getting dressed. So I'm saying to myself, how is that going to work out? How is that going to work out? Is it going to be okay? Will I, will I be feeling happy after the day? It was now Thursday the 5th of December 2019, the day that Winston True would be told his conviction was unsafe. And I say it's looking good, it's looking good. I, 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 and and I, I'm, as I said, I'm not going to feel happy until it's over. Judge says, as far as he's concerned, these convictions are unsafe. In other words, Woodrow's a thoroughly disreputable humble fellow. He quashed his conviction. I couldn't believe it. We quashed the convictions. Those are the words I was looking at. We quashed the convictions. I was so happy I would I could have burst out of my skin. I thought after all these years, after all these I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. One of the happiest days of my life. I don't have to think about Rudrill anymore at all. I don't have to think about him anymore at all. At last, there's just two of us in our marriage and myself and my wife. Woodrow's no longer part of our marriage. I went on and on and on about Woodrow. I thought he was part of And now we don't think about it. And I said, I can exhale at last. Woodrow was convicted of stealing parcels, but nobody knows he stole people's lives. He stole 47 years of my life, and I'll never get those years back. Two of the Oval Four's convictions were overturned that day, Winston's and Sterling Christie's. Sadly, Sterling died this year just months after his conviction was quashed. Yeah, he, he only just survived long enough to clear his name. For Winston and Sterling, though, that day was one to celebrate. And they did, quite rightly, with champagne. The remaining two members of the Oval Four, Omar Boucher and George Griffiths, also had their convictions overturned earlier this year. But those were victories they'd rather not have had to win in an otherwise desperate story of injustice. Look, in people who knew you couldn't believe that you were innocent, that's how bad it was. Like you're in a world by yourself. People you met looked at yourself, 
But why would the police lie? Why would the police lie? Because they're bloody liars. They wanted to, but why? You must have done something wrong. And it just wore you, it just wore you down. What effects did that have on you as a person? During my time in prison, my first wife medicated that she can't take it anymore. She was left by herself. With two, I had two sons with her. She lost confidence in herself. She lost confidence in me. So when I came out of prison in July in 1973, by July 1994, she'd left me. Took the two children, left them in Jamaica with her relatives and went to America and stayed there. And that was it. I said, Rudolph was throwing a hand grenade into my life. Blew it up, shattered it, scattered it to the four corners of the earth. I couldn't gather anything together at all. I lost confidence in myself. What I thought was real wasn't real anymore. The organization that I belonged to started to dissipate, disappear. The world you knew no longer existed. So even after the, the, the experience of having to spend time in prison, I think sometimes it's a stigma. Um, people who actually managed to go and have careers despite having a criminal record. And a criminal record for dishonesty really makes it difficult to forge a, a career. But people who have, to a certain extent, moved on, got a career, had children, who, who don't even feel that they could tell their, their own families about what, what they've been through because, because of the stigma attached to, to, to having been sent to prison. Tootin in his garden was his world. Stephen Simmons fits into that category. Many of his friends and family knew nothing of his conviction. That was him just there talking about his dad, who he thought left Tooting in southwest London due to his ill health. No. He said, I left Tooting because you little shit. Just the fact that my father called me a little shit put the echoes up on the back of my neck. And I looked and I thought, have I got a blank for that? And he went, when you went in that prison, you don't think me and your mother was going to stay in Tooting with all the, because all the neighbours, we knew each other, Mrs. Deaton, Nana, Nan, you weren't going to come out of prison and then them know that you've been in prison. My parents moved because I was in prison. I, in my mind, I know that they never, ever forgive me for what the shame that I brought on the family. You live with that. Those, that kind of thing, where that happens to you and you realise that it's not affected me that way, it's what it done to my parents. Now I hope that Ridgewell died very, very slowly and as fucking painful as it can be for what he done to my parents and my brothers. I just, I just find it shocking that it had to take so many years for the acknowledged truth to be reflected in justice. Even more shocking that in that context where an inquiry had been called for, only a, a, a matter of years later, he is sent to prison and yet no one thinks that they should be looking into his, his old cases, especially the cases where pe people were saying that they had essentially been set up by Dear Midwell. What has never made sense, which I really still struggle with, is what the BTP did by allowing him to carry on. To me, they, they are 95% to blame more than he is. He had a reason for it. What reason did they have to keep an officer on that they knew was Ben? Looking into the Oval 4 case left many important questions in my mind, far more than I can deal with in one 30-minute podcast. 
What does it say about the state of our system when it takes nearly 50 years to overturn a wrongful conviction? What does it say about the integrity when the authorities, the British Transport Police, were aware of DS Ridgewell's reputation and yet he was simply moved? What does it say about retrospective justice? Ridgewell was arrested and imprisoned for dishonesty, corruption and theft, but nobody thought it important to reinvestigate his cases, as Jenny mentioned, especially those where people were proclaiming their innocence. How can a system ever make amends for such action? And what does it say about racism in the police force, then and now? I'm sure more questions have been raised in your head listening, and we do hope to look into these issues in later episodes of the podcast. If I couldn't save myself, how could I say I'm a black activist? I don't, I'd, I'd have no authority to say what I wanted to say. Now, I do have the authority. You can beat this. I beat it. Stand up for yourself. How could I be telling black people to stand up for their rights and I couldn't stand up for my own rights? So even, even though it was about yourself, it was bigger than you as well. You know, it was about finding yourself and, and being authentic to yourself, but it was a bigger movement than just your freedom and your liberation. Exactly, because it was a worldwide movement. We identified the black people in the Caribbean who were struggling against colonialism, neocolonialism. Black people in America were struggling for their civil rights. Black people in Africa are struggling against colonialism. Black people in this country fight against police brutality. The thing that, that that's most common to black experience, the young people in the 1970s, is police brutality and police harassment. The same thing now that's happening now with the police was similar thing in the 1970s. Although things have changed, one thing hasn't changed, police harassment. It's funny, actually, I, I have a question written down, which I, I, I kind of now want to change, but I said, I'd written, how long did you think that fight would last? But actually listening to you speak, it was never going to be over this fight, was it? No. What I call black becoming is a never-ending struggle. There's no final point. It's something that keeps on and on and on. So although there's no black power movement now, I'm still a black activist. I don't need, I don't need an organisation to express myself. I express, I'm express myself to you now. I express myself in a book. I express myself in any and every form that I, I can saying this is who I am, that's where I'm coming from, this is where I'm hoping it will go. There's no final destination. Personal authenticity and integrity have been driving forces throughout Winston's life. Stephen Simmons told me about the reason why he wanted to be involved in this podcast. How many other people that are in my position that are ashamed, like Winston, have had a lot of grief through the years over it? And how many lives can it change? You know, and That's why I, I, I do as many diseases as I can. To get the Ridgewell bit out there and I go, well, I got done by him. For both men, their wrongful convictions were and are bigger than themselves. On a personal note, though, Winston is finally free from the unbearable grip that was Detective Sergeant Derek Ridgewell. Sometimes I'd be in the kitchen and I'd with my wife and I said, Bastard Ridgewell. He's just ruined my bloody life. He's in my head. He's in my head all of the time. He's in there all of the time, in the back of my mind, lodging with intent, in my head, in my head. Now he's no longer in my head. I don't have to think about him anymore. I don't have to get up and say, what can I find out about Rujol now? It's going to help my case. Uh, I, listen, I, a great weight has been lifted from my mind, a great burden. I don't have to think about the man anymore as a menace. 
You've been listening to Unjust, a Justice Gap podcast. It was produced by me, Callum McRae, with the help of Aisha Ahmed and Aksa Hussein. The music was again produced by Ed Starkey, and you can find his stuff on SoundCloud. Please, please do share the podcast among your friends and colleagues. Word of mouth is the most powerful tool we have. <laughs>